This is part two of my interview with Joe Lindsay Walton on economics and fiction. Enjoy. You are now listening to Beyond the Fourth Wall of Writing with your host, John Robinson IV. Here we smash walls, demolish writer's blocks, and learn how to harness the true power of storytelling. Let's get it cracking. But okay, so we talked a lot about magic systems. I'm I'm a big fan of magic systems because I think it I think it is an excellent way of helping to form your story. Um, but kind of back to uh, other other forms of uh, economics and writing. Uh, I kind of wanted to ask, like, what we talked a little about gift giving, and we you know, and we know of our our systems of economics, uh, or, or at least our normal systems of economics are, you know, hey, I have a dollar, I give you a dollar, you give me a Tootsie Pop or whatever. Um, what what other kind of economic systems do you do you know of that you think would be interesting to use in uh, in fiction? Yeah, well, okay. Um, I would say that in in the public imaginary, there's often a sense that you have a kind of spectrum. Um, and on one end of the spectrum, you have a kind of libertarian or, or neoliberal or hyper neoliberal capitalism. Um, and the more state power, in other words, the more government you add, the, the further left you move. And at some point you reach kind of social democracy and you keep going a little bit further. And then at some point you reach um, communism and um, that kind of communism usually expressed as being highly centralized command economy. Um, I think that authors, or all of us, but certainly authors of fiction and authors who are interested in exploring possible societies need to absolutely explode that spectrum. So they are, you're asking what kinds of economic mm-hmm. systems there are. First of all, many, many different types of capitalism. Um, and these many different types of capitalism are embedded in many different types of social and cultural norms, right? So economic systems interact with the social and cultural norms in which they're embedded in significant ways. You can't study um, a society without, so you can't, you can't study an economy without also studying the society in which it's embodied. So I think that's the first point is to, is to recognize that we don't live in this kind of basic trade-off between markets and government, even though the, you know, the, the line that we're fed and the, um, the, the tiny little box that we're asked constantly to occupy. So, you know, I would, I would suggest like, you know, do a little bit of research into at the very least the different forms of capitalism, the different forms of socialism that have actually existed throughout history um, and that have been proposed as mm-hmm. well, right? Um, so, you know, you, 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 I'm trying to I'm trying to think if uh, if there are any particular books, um, and then thinking kind of more widely, you might want to think about, for example, the role that technology plays in your imaginary economy. So there are there are kind of, you know, uh, primitivist versions of um, utopia that involve um, very little technology, or maybe perhaps they do involve technology, but not what we would ordinarily think of as technology, not the kind of chrome, shiny, um, 
gee whiz gadgets, maybe kind of more subtle forms of technology to do with agriculture, to do with um, the built environment, to do with even um, social technologies in the ways people uh, deal with and interact with with one another. Um, you might want to think you might want to um, kind of do some Googling around the concept of the commons. Right. So um, throw aside the idea that some resource can only be governed by either the market where it's owned more or less absolutely by some private individual on the one hand or by a kind of centralized state bureaucracy and just kind of open your imagination to all the possible ways that a group of people could interact with some kind of common resource. They could have all kinds of different um, rights of use, um, different kinds of rights of commanding the attention and agency of the others in the community to um, reformulate and reorient the ways in which those particular resources are formed. Eleanor Ostrom is one thinker who has talked um, a lot about the commons and ways in which um, things can be kind of governed communally. And that doesn't necessarily, again, have to be a romanticized version of it. You could tell a story about this sort of uh, form of ownership going wrong if you want to. Uh, that can be very interesting. Um and then, of course, yeah, you know, there's a there's a whole strand of post scarcity science fiction. Um, and then I find that a lot of authors actually prefer to occupy rather than a, a society of, of huge abundance where kind of anything is, is available at the snap of your fingers, societies that are maybe kind of like on their way to abundance, but 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 have certain kinds of uh, limitations and constraints. So um, Cory Doctorow's Walk Away is a really interesting uh, novel that I would recommend that's kind of set in a near future world that is gradually transitioning towards post-scarcity, towards abundance, towards um, a kind of materialistic utopia. Maybe I shouldn't call it a materialistic utopia, but transitioning towards a, a place where there is plenty and where nobody Certainly nobody wants for, you know, food and shelter and um, basic necessities and, and probably nobody really wants in the long term for luxuries either. Um, that's interesting, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's for sure. You know, I, sorry. I think like the, the real answer to that is like try to go wild. Really try to go wild. So um, I, 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 there I haven't even begun to, to scratch um, the, the many, many kind of economic systems that exist that are usually kind of designated as in, informal systems of reciprocity. So we talked a little bit about um, gift economies, but uh, uh, systems, for example, that um, might use multiple spheres of exchange. So a very basic question to ask yourself if you're creating a, a, a new economic system, let's say you want there to be money, okay? Well, why have just one type of money? Mm. Why not have several different types of money? I like that. Exchangeable for different right. types of things. Um, and actually, in, in uh, you know, I, I don't want to kind of overgeneralize, but certainly in a, in a huge number of human societies um, over the centuries, that has been the case. There have been multiple spheres of exchange and there have been quite um, interesting, sensitive, sizzly rules about when you can move from one sphere of exchange to another. 
So, um, what's it called? The book there is. Um, I'm actually just Googling to make sure I get it right. Evident. There's a classic collection of essays, Money and the Morality of Exchange, that would be a good starting place for that. Also, the work of Viviana Zelizer. Um, and again, you know, David Graeber, who I mentioned earlier, um, and who I think was actually an, an influence on Cory Doctorow's walk away. He's another good person to look at for that. Um, so, yeah, you know, think about in terms of, of spheres of exchange. Think about in terms of, um, you know, challenge your assumptions about what what property is. Kind of invent new conventions um, around the ways in which people interact with resources that are maybe shared in some ways whilst also being private in other ways um, and, and try and go a little bit wild with it. You know, the, the real world is already kind of much richer and wilder in terms of economic systems. And we often admit um, or that, that is kind of generally known. So, so find out about that by all means, you know, do, do your research and, and, and kind of get inspired, but also see if you can go even further. Um, like I said, kind of toward, towards the beginning, like this is fiction. You get to make it up. Um, there isn't really any way to wrong. And while I think world building is, is very important, um, and it's especially important for, for some writers, um, you know, the, the coherence is, is basically ultimately up to, up to the conversation that you have between you and, and the reader. That it's in the process of that conversation that the reader decides, okay, I'm going to, allow myself to be immersed in this world, I'm going to give this world the benefit of the doubt. Um, they, they're not going to kind of sit there running simulations, running modeling and saying, oh, wait, this is... Well, I don't know. Maybe some, maybe some yeah, readers there's, do there's a few every once in a while, but not, not the majority. Those are, those are the outliers. <laughs> yeah, I think they're the outliers. I think, you know, I think you can tell a good story about your, your, your weird and wonderful world and you can, you can throw in some weird and wonderful economics in there. It can be part of a great big system where you, where you introduce that, um, uh, you know, the, the tooth fairy or the novum or I think NK Jemison just calls it the X. Um, you know, the, the thing that's weird and you start thinking about what are the implications of that and then what are the implications of the implications and what are the third order implications of this kind of, you know, non-realist fact that I've introduced into my world. And you can be really systematic about it. You can do it that way if you want. But for some stories, you might just want to add in your weird fact, you know, like um, go to your go to a, a, a random word generator, generate 10 words and decide to yourself like um my money system, I'm going to have three forms of money and each one is going to be based on one of the words that comes out of these uh, 10 random words and then make it work. We actually, um, I, I did a, a workshop with Oliver Langmead and Thomas Smules a, a while ago where they basically did an exercise like that. They gave us some, some random words and um, asked us to create money systems based on that. And then they asked us to think about, like, what would a poor person look like in this world? What would a rich person look like in this world? What would a bank or financial institution look like in this world? And then the final stage, which was really fun, was what would a heist look like in this world? So, you know, we had, like, money based on smells and feathers and things like that. And suddenly we're trying to put together our caper team. <laughs> that is interesting. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love the I love the the idea and concepts of different forms of currency. You know, you know, this money can buy this, but it's useless over here. You know, totally, totally. And, and you know, the funny thing is, that's kind of what we, even when we think of national currencies, that's kind of already the case, right? Like, I can't I can't buy things from the corner shop. 
round round here um, in dollars. I, I tell a lie, but that's only because the, the corner shop around my corner is exceptionally cool um, and would, would pretty much take anything. But yeah, there, there are already at the national level, obviously kind of, of spheres of exchange. Um, yeah, but it's uh, so Bernard Liatta is an, another interesting person to look at that. I think his one of his books is called The, the Future of Money, and he's interested in um, what are sometimes called alternate or complementary currencies, which are currencies that are designed to run alongside national currencies like pound sterling and, and dollar and the euro and so on um, for kind of specific purposes. So here's this, the sense that you can design a, a currency and it's not going to be a neutral reflection of the value that exists in the world. Rather, it's going to be a kind of agency in the world. It's going to be a machine that does things. Um, I, I like to think of money basically as a as a form of, of AI, um, a form of kind of pre-computational AI. Um, and just like you can program an AI to do lots of things and it can do them well or it can do them poorly, so you can program a money system to do different things. Um, and, and perhaps the money systems that we're immersed in at the moment have kind of got to that point where they're like the, you know, they're like the, the crazy, mad, evil AI, um, you know, mad in a pejorative sense, like a, like a, kind of violent, maleficent um, AI that's taking over the world. So when we think about like, I'll, 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 the, you know, the big word, and we, we spoke a little bit earlier is, uh, is value, you know, like money revolves around value. You know, if you, if, if you don't want that thing that it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to me. I, if I don't, you know, if, if I don't play, um, magic the gathering or something then the value of that a hundred dollar card means nothing to me i'm just like why would you it's a piece of paper you know with a cool picture on it you know um (laughs) so what what are some interesting ways do you think to to kind of create value that's not just you know putting a price well i guess how would you put a price on something you know um what 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 creates the value is it is it a thing that's difficult to make because it requires an expertise of some sort uh is it the time that it takes to make a thing you know uh this thing costs this much because it takes 10 years minimum to make it you know um mm-hmm. what, what are some ways to i guess create value for things yeah um a very interesting question so <laughs> the the examples you give you said uh the, the time that it takes to make something that was one example. something like yeah one? like the time it takes to make something or a skill you know a, a person or thing or skill that you would need to make something yeah so some of those alternative currencies that i just mentioned kind of take that principle and, and try to operationalize it and um so for example um ithaca dollars um is one Echo, the economy of ours is another, and there are literally hundreds of these worldwide um, time-based economies. So there's a, a currency, and the currency is essentially based on the unit of, of human labor. Um, and there's a there's a tension in these currencies around um, kind of egalitarian principles. So in some of them. One person's labor is worth an hour of another person's labor, no matter what, you know, no matter what kind of level of, of, uh, what kind of skills you're bringing to the time currency market. Um, some people will, will, will struggle with that and they'll argue with that and they'll say, well, look, actually my, um, my labor. So I've, you know, I spent an hour 
um, being a network administrator. Um, and you know, that, that, that's a skilled task that I'm doing. And I, my hour actually has other hours that I've spent earlier embedded in it. So like my, my hour is like a kind of zip file hour that contains all this kind of like compressed, boiling, super precious, valuable time. Um, and that deserves to be recognized in some way. And I, I mean, I can kind of see that, but, um, in, in the end, I, I don't really buy it. And, um, who is it that's quite good on, on this? I think it's, uh, Michael Albert. Yeah. So if, if you want to, um, find a, a, a kind of good takedown of that, of that principle and, and a good defense of the idea that really, you know, anybody, anybody's, time is is more or less worth um the same as anybody else's i think um michael albert who writes about participate economics um if if i'm remembering rightly he gives a a good account of that more broadly the question that you're asking is about the value not just of um currencies but the value of of anything um so in <laughs> I mean, you know, you can, you can go look to Adam Smith, uh, the famous old Adam Smith, very often misrepresented Adam Smith. Um, and you'll find, you'll find two theories of value, two contradictory theories of value in, in the early parts of the wealth of nations. Um, but with, you know, with, without getting into the, getting kind of bogged down in the details, the idea for a long time, was to try and understand value in the terms that you're describing um, as a as a kind of measure of what had gone into something. So there's a lot of kind of controversy about um, whether it's you know it, whether it's just labor that matters, um, whether it's whether nature itself has value. So you know certain things are kind of rare or scarce. Um, and 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 what other kinds of factors of production should be understood and how and you know what is the exact recipe or what is the formula that we use to add up all these things that will kind of um produce the the value of the object um and so these are these are often called labor theories of value um and they participate in the wider category of production theories of value and there's some there's some you know, some interesting debate and also some kind of confusion about the relationship of value in that sense with price. So, you know, the, the kind of intuitive thing is to say, well, things have a real value and their price may or may not reflect that real value. Um, so, if, uh, you know, I think, I think this probably goes back to Aquinas and, um, the just price, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Don't, don't, don't quote me on that. Um, but, the, but the idea being that like, it's kind of intuitive that if if not that much um, time and effort and resources went into making something and then I sell it to you um, for a, a vastly inflated price that you're you're kind of willing to pay because you're desperate and you you need it um, that somehow I've done something like objectively unjust there so there's you know they, you can see why people tried to make these production theories of value work and um, I believe that, that, that people still do in many ways. Um, around about the turn of the 
20th century, there was um, a movement in economics and, and William Stanley Jevons, who we were talking about earlier, was part of this, um, the, the marginalist revolution. And there was a shift to um, subjective theories of value. And these guys basically um, threw, out, threw out the idea of production theory of value and said that value is essentially subjective. People value things for different reasons and such complex reasons that we'll never be able to figure it out. So the only thing we can really think about is what is the price? Right, right. Um, um, one of the things that I thought about, uh, I, was, I was just thinking about when you, when you mentioned this and something that I was actually researching <clears throat> recently because I still don't get it. Um, <laughs> this, this idea of people the masses creating value around something simply because the masses say so so and what and what i mean uh what is, what is a good example of that what i mean is um okay so a uh so some so some jordans come out right some new some new jordans right mm-hmm. and um right. Because they're Jordans, over time, <laughs> this value has been created on the shoe that I don't know how much shoes cost to produce, but it's definitely not the price <laughs> or anywhere near the price that they're being right. sold for. Okay. And, yeah. and, you know, the hype around these shoes creates so much value in this shoe. Mm. And it doesn't, it, a lot of the time, it does not matter how the shoe looks. It's just that it's the new one. So it doesn't matter if it looks good or not. There's, you know, that's not the value okay. factor. The value factor is, oh, and a new, a new pair came, came out and I need it. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and because yeah. the masses say that this is valuable, everybody flocks to it. Um, do you have any thoughts on that kind of value? I mean, I, <laughs> I can't totally like plumb that mystery. Uh, I doesn't really really answer your question, but I can uh, I can recommend a short story that is online somewhere called Limited Edition by Tim Morn, um, and it is absolutely about uh, you know hyping up a pair of new kicks. Um, but yeah, I mean, I suppose I uh, I suppose that actually kind of follows on quite neatly in the sense that this switch to subjective theory of value abandons the, the actually really interesting questions. Um, and it, and it tells us that we, we can't think about value apart from values that are determined as prices by markets. Um, and that plays quite neatly into this, um, neoliberal tradition, which in, in all kinds of scurrilous and academically irresponsible ways um, begins to lionize the market as this magical computer that can kind of determine the the true price right. of uh, and the true value of anything, whether that's, you know, what you're describing, these Jordans that, that like, like, come on, we all, know, we, we kind of all know that there's something weird going on there, <laughs> that there's like, some dissonance between social, like the social value or the, the kind of emotional value that um, that it can, you know, really genuinely satisfy and and its economic value. And then, um, and then it's like, is that value? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about this. I also I'm thinking about the magic card again. I can see the magic mm-hmm. card. It's valuable because this magic card, it's a meta card, right? Like you, like 
everybody's going to be playing it in their in their you know white magic deck or whatever you know it's like absolutely <laughs> necessary to contend right that we we get the yeah. value there the the jordans i'm and when I, when I dig deeper into it it could be kind of a social thing well a social accept, acceptance thing you know well people are going mm. to look at me a certain way because now i have these new jordans that everybody says is cool you know what i mean so now there's like a, yeah. a, a different level the value lies in, in, social, mean, I, in the social value yeah and and that you know we do we can't dismiss that like i, I don't have i don't have much time for the kind of um the, the curmudgeonly attitude that presents itself as sensible and hard-nosed <laughs> and says that like like the esteem of your peers isn't you know isn't right. worth anything um <laughs> Like, I mean, even when you describe those, those shoes, I, I kind of found myself, you know, want, wanting these. So, like, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you all my money. Can I, can I have the shoes now, please? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it, I guess, you know, I guess it gets us into the territory of bubbles. Um, sometimes things get, um, valued because, they because people know that they can make a profit by selling them on um and then you you know you get into the the world of finance where value works in in very strange ways and you have for example you know the the derivatives markets um which are financial assets that are based on underlying assets and the you know the the value of the derivative markets um vastly overwhelms the the smaller markets on which it's supposedly based so you know that these things in theory they kind of give you the power to um you know the, the option to buy and sell uh, a, a another financial instrument at a particular time um or they allow you to kind of uh you know they, they work as a sort of a, a form of insurance um but there's something else going on there, you know. There's 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 so much value in there that cannot be explained merely in terms of the kind of convenience of the particular little maneuvers that um, they allow you to they allow you to do with your with your capital. Um, there's 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 a value there that comes from from what you're talking about um, or, or part of what you're talking about, which is financial speculation. I find, like uh, one that I find really, really weird is that you have these like investment grade bottles of, of whiskey <laughs> that people will buy as a financial asset and it's going to go up and nobody ever drinks it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, and some art works that way as well. Like you have all this art that's just sitting in, in container ships. Um, uh, nobody's looking at it. But art art you know, is it's, very interesting when you think about economics. Uh, art mm. is so I, I can't quite grasp the value of art I mean I know that it's good like you look at a good piece of art and it's like wow that's amazing mm. but then how does it become a billion dollars you know I'm not saying it's that much but you know how, how does it become you know then it's, it's age partially it's like okay well this will never be made again um, that person had a creative mind like no other um, I mean the Mona Lisa sucks <laughs> like, yeah you, I don't it, really much like it either <laughs> It's like oh, I could I could totally do that. You know, it's just like there's a there's a Batman comic where there's a Batman comic where he he yeah that's right. So they paint so uh, Da Vinci is painting the Mona Lisa and he actually paints Batman in the background. 
uh, like this is you know slightly revisionist um or it, yeah it's like it's like the you know it's a it's a it's a precursor to batman but it is like it, you know what i think it might be it might even be da vinci himself who's like created this uh bat mechanism that he kind of glides into the um the studio with anyway he ends up in in the painting um but then like i think an apprentice like does um pentimento and kind of paints over it but yeah underneath the mona lisa and i believe this is true there is batman so if we can get in there with like uh i don't know like what the spirits whatever it is you use to kind of take off the the pentimento he's in there man um which is why it's such a valuable painting and why lots that of people would make sense actually yeah. <laughs> yeah. but but yeah that's that's one of those things that you know is a a unique kind of value because it's one of a kind you know the starry night by who's that van gogh uh van gogh van gogh yeah. however you pronounce his name <laughs> uh you know yeah. th- things like you know it's just like it's one of a kind you'll never see it again um but still it's mm. like some people look at it and they're just like but there are lots of things that are one of a kind that you'll never see again you know like when I do a poo, uh, <laughs> like it's unique uh, and it's very special, right, right. and uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of morally just like. But nobody wants night. to pay value for the poo. <laughs> no, no, I don't know. Maybe it's a story. Right, right. Uh, so yeah, there's there, there's there's something very interesting on, at that kind of high high level about you know why why is this ex- extremely kind of um, prestigious and and you know often incredibly beautiful and profound and moving art you know why why is it so um economically valuable but i think it's also really interesting when you think about like the other side of things the um the the artists throughout society who uh whose work isn't kind of economically validated um Sometimes you have situations where it's like, you know, so, so this comes up in Ursula Le Guin's, um, fantastic classic book, which has quite a bit of economics in it, The Dispossessed. Um, that there's a, there's a musician there and actually he's, he's, he's living in a society without money, but it, it raises that same kind of question about like who, who really should determine when art is valuable and when it is not. Um, you know, Van Gogh, uh, or Van Gogh, uh, famously kind of wasn't, um, wasn't a respected artist in his own lifetime. Um, and, and where that maybe kind of gets you eventually, I think, is that actually probably there isn't a way of determining who should be allowed to be an artist and who shouldn't. There probably isn't an objective way. And so there's an implication there that maybe we should just all be allowed to be artists like maybe that's where we should be kind of trying to to figure out how we can configure our society to to make that it's the masses that that decide what is good or what isn't um you know i not everybody may think that i mean yeah you say you say it's the masses that decide but also it's it's often like you know true it's uh, who've been to prestigious universities um you know writing in in journals i don't i don't mean to sound anti-academic when i say that but it's um you know that value is formed at at many different levels and in society and i don't know if anybody's really right right right. It's, it's it's really hard when it comes to creative works whether it's music art whatever i mean some people might listen to a song and say well that's crap and it's like 
Mm. But everybody says it's good. So, you know, well, let me listen to it. And then you, oh, I, that's crap. And so uh, there's a lot of, you and, know, and subjective. Uh, like, jo- John, you you as a creator, uh, and, you know, you say, like, you're at the beginning of a of, of a journey or, or early in a journey, like, that, that path can go many ways. And would you, you know, would you ultimately prefer to have, like, a large number of people engaging with your work in a very shallow way and maybe not even, you know, maybe saying, yeah, we, we, we love it, but you kind of, you talk to them about it and you feel like maybe they don't really get your vibes or like a really small group of, of incredibly devoted, um, you know, fans and, and, and readers, um, and peers. Like, how do you, how do you judge between those two right. things? Um, well, there's always going to, I think when it comes to creative work, there's always going to be the outlier, that, that, that larger group of people who kind of just nod along with everybody else, you know, they're just kind of, Oh yeah, that's, that's good. You know, um, yeah, it, hap- it happens okay. yeah. in comics a lot, um, where there'll be a generally respected comic and people will say, oh, yeah, I, I like that comic. And like 95 percent of those people have not read that comic. They saw some art from the comic. Okay. And, yeah. and don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Looking yeah. at art by itself, even if you haven't read the comic, is a totally valid reason to like the comic. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, right. before I yeah. read Saga, yeah. um, I loved Lion Cat and I was up, down, left to write about Lion Cat, you know? Right. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I hadn't read it yet. You know, I was just kind of like, I was like, oh, yeah, Saga, I heard it was great and it must be because everybody said And then when I read it, I realized that it was. And I think to get back to your original question, I think that because of that small group of people you know, initially who read Saga, um, who said, wow, this is amazing. It got popular enough for the outskirts people to kind of see it, like myself at one point, who was just kind of looking at pictures mm-hmm. and characters from it or whatever. Um, and and it, it, it creates, like, that, that small group of people will eventually create that larger group of people who are just, like, the satellite outskirts people. And then that larger group of people who are really into it will gradually grow larger. So I think I would prefer the smaller group because I think it's a growth process. Right. <laughs> I think it's a growth process. I, right. You're anxious <laughs> Yeah. Because cause, I mean, cause if, if it's the other one, if I say, well, I want a lot of people to like it who don't really care about it, then it's going to fizzle out because nobody... Yeah. I mean, yeah, you could you could imagine actually though that the, the reverse process could occur that like you, you have you have a big splash with some particular work and then some of those people peel away over time um, but other people kind of you know re- remain engaged with, with your work and and deepen their connection and their understanding with it. Um, I really liked Saga. Or the, I think I read up to about like, I, I don't know, man, they were on that tree and there was the guy with the TV, with the head, the prince. Uh, and there was like, anyway. Excellent series. Um, I mean, I, I always thought it was interesting from looking at pictures, but when I finally read it, um, and I'm all the way caught up and I'm, and I'm like halfway through rereading it because it's so good. Um, but when I finally read it, I was like, wow, I get why people are saying this is like hands down one of the best comics ever created because it really is. It's just that wild and out there. It's just so, it's like, I feel like there's writers that reach a certain point where they unlock something that allows them to write beyond conventional. So, I mean, like the tree you're talking about, there's a tree that is a spaceship. It's a tree, though. Yeah. I mean, like, there's yeah, something yeah. unlocked in his head, you know, <laughs> to make a tree that's a spaceship. Yeah. <laughs> how, do you, how do you think you write, like, like uh, what I en- remember enjoying about the, the ones that I read is that it was kind of constantly, gently surprising. Um, and it didn't, it, 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 it did feel cohesive. It did feel like I was 
continually like exploring a, a world that made sense. But I didn't necessarily believe that the, the world had kind of existed in the, the writer's head all at once, right? I did get this sense that there was something kind of imaginatively generating itself bit by bit, some something kind of improvisational about it. I feel like he had his base two races. He had his base characters and their mm. base conflict. Um, and I think he had his base, uh, you know, the storytelling aspect is, is, is from this, the little girl. Oh, wow. I'm forgetting her name. Uh, <laughs> but the, but the little, the, the, the yeah. yeah, the little girl, the little girl who was a, who was a mix between the two races, um, who are, who are fighting in a war against oh, okay. one, yeah. one another. Um, so yeah, the little yeah. girl, um, who, who she's telling, she's narrating the story. And I think he had kind of like those elements down. And then after that, he was just like thought of, I mean, I'm sure he had a lot of creative things in his head and he just introduced them slowly. Maybe he didn't plan for all of them before they came, but they all, they all worked because his foundation was set. And I think that's the fun thing about, especially magical creative worlds. Once you set your foundation and you, and you set your plot, um, and, and you set your theme and you know the story you're trying to tell, then the other elements can just be added in as you go, especially for comic series, you know, comic series is, Especially ongoing for fifty plus issues, you're not gonna have every you're not gonna have every issue with every character and every creature, planet, whatever thought up. It's just you know it's not gonna happen that way. But as as you go around along this journey with these characters, you know that something happens with these characters to get to a certain point, and these elements that you introduce will will uh, help propel them along that journey. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And then it 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 kind of becomes like you're you're telling a story to yourself, and you're you're reading along even as you're writing it and and that can be really right, exciting right. And fun. <laughs> um but uh but yeah so yeah we, we were talking about value there was something else on that topic that i that had come to mind slipping my mind now what was it um yeah i guess i, I guess kind of still surrounding the idea of people placing value on things uh i guess what what do you think and this kind of goes back more into the fiction aspect what do you think makes a person valuable and worth more hmm. um yeah you know is it, mm-hmm. it, 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 the, the easy answer is all oh, the, the skills i guess you know yeah, they could do this and nobody else could do that or, or or what have you but what other elements do you think can make a person and a story valuable a character right well i mean i guess that might partly be a question about meritocracy um and I think Cory Doctorow is quite good on the topic of meritocracy in um, the novel Walkaway, which I mentioned. Thomas Ketty in um, the large and dry but um, very kind of scrupulous book Capital is also very good on the topic of meritocracy and you know their their line is basically that it's a it's a sham um like we we're we're all different we all have different aptitudes um some of us are better at some things than others um there's a a cartoon that floats around the the sort on twitter where there's kind of a, like a you know a, a giraffe and a wildebeest and uh um, monkey and uh, elephant and uh, uh, porcupine and they're having a sort of job interview and the test 
to make sure that the test is completely fair. They'll all do exactly the same task. And it's like climb up the tree and, you know, peel, peel the banana. Um, and I think, you know, that, that kind of encapsulates how um, meritocracy is always going to kind of rank society in a very particular way. And it's going to kind of exclude certain capacities and aptitudes from from the, the, the sorts of value that they could accrue in, in other possible societies. Um, and whatever way you look at it, like the the situation that we we now find ourselves in um in terms of like the you know the the, the money that jeff bezos makes per second like it don't matter like that unless unless he's like a, a pyromancer who can create fire even if he can create fireballs at will uh yeah, he shouldn't be taking home that kind of paycheck so you know what 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 makes people valuable like i, I think I guess we have to kind of remember that, that that everybody is valuable um and that questions that try to ask us try to make us um think of some people as 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 more valuable and legitimate than others are are usually questions that we want to kind of challenge and um resist um, that said we we do live in a society and most of the fictional societies that you'll you'll be writing as an author we do live in a society in which people are constantly put into hierarchies and people constantly valued um above one another um yeah it's a it, it it's a it's a complicated question like the the the, <laughs> the super simple i guess crude obvious answer is that um uh identity characteristics like class and wealth and race and gender and sexuality are what determine whether people are valued more or less in various circumstances yeah. um in society and and yeah that's something that that's that's always worth kind of challenging mm-hmm. yeah I, I was i was just um yeah. you mentioned I, nk uh earlier which uh, I, I'm reading her books for the first time. I actually actually got into reading. I, I, I know I've been meaning to read her for a long time. Um, I got into her novel because I read her Green Lantern comic called Far Sector. Um, oh, and I read okay. that first issue and I was just like, this is really well, like this is like a really, cl- I don't know, like every aspect of this story is just so well put together it's just perfect and it's not even like i'm mad that the, the you know it's not even like a main green lantern story it's just like a like a offshoot somewhere it's not even it's far sector it's off in the far sector where nobody ever you know um and i was just like wow like this is insanely good so i'm like okay well let me go pick up whatever else so i go on our website i literally go on the website and pick the first novel that i see on our website and i go to amazon and, and grab it right so <laughs> so um and that was broken earth uh uh the right, uh cool. the, the, the fifth season was the first book and i read that book yeah. and i'm like this is one of the best books i've ever read in my life like oh, wow yeah. <laughs> like lying. it's insane and i'm still in, I'm, in, I'm in the middle of the second book called the obelisk gate but my my point is yeah. we we uh, I asked about value because I'm, I'm I was thinking about how there's these characters in this book who people hate because they're so powerful the origins yeah. um they yeah. hate the, because and, and they hate them because they can't control like initially they can't control their powers and even as babies they can kill people like lots of people you know um but but then there's a point in the book where the main mm-hmm. character who has several names <laughs> whether it's Esun or yeah. or, or Dayama or, 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 yeah. or uh, <laughs> but uh yeah she 
she uh, enters this society where she becomes instantly, even though everybody everybody's like really uh, a season is going on, which is like a, it's a bad time to put it in simple terms. Uh, but she enters the society where she is immediately highly valued because of her control over her abilities. Where this is opposite. Game, this, right? this is an obelisk. Just, game. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So she's Im- game, she's yeah. she's immediately, uh, but she's also in like tremendous danger. Right. The exactly. Whole time. Exactly. Um, and, and I, I just I thought that was so inter- interesting how people kind of resented and valued her at the same time. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and and, yeah. and and while it's not direct economics and it's in, in, in the way we, we think of it in terms of you know well money system and bartering or, or, or give and take there is a give and take with you know how they treat this person is a, is a human being um, versus what she offers are they treating her this way be they're, they're treating her some kind of way because they hate what she is but then they also need her because of what she is so her value is is kind of at a in a limbo state you know what I mean Um yeah, like like an origin is, is is valuable as long as they're not destroying everybody. But it's, but if they can control yeah. their powers, then we then then we can use them. You know. Do you remember that bit? And I might be misremembering it, but in the first novel, where she goes to like cl- clear a reef with her, um, you know, with her powers, and it's like you know she's she's met with this kind of, um like a, she's kind of slighted socially. She's met with kind of like this frosty disrespect. And I, I could be slightly misremembering because it it's been a while since I read it, but I, I feel like, you know, she's very particular about ensuring that she has, um, you know, that her, that her status is recognized that like the, the, the proper kind of s- social rituals are um, conformed to, and that, that she doesn't take this slight. And when I first read that, I had this moment of being like, huh, like, you know, what's that about? Like, that seems like a little bit petty. Um, and I, I thought about it more. I was like, oh, no, okay. This is um, like, you know, this is a, <laughs> this is a society in which you're, you're a potentially extremely vulnerable um, subsection of society, despite your, you know, e- e- extraordinary powers and potential and the, the kind of symbolic violence of being just, slighted um seeing your you know having your legitimacy in some way kind of cast into doubt could slide very easily into real violence um and i just it was actually that moment where i was like wow this is actually a quite a clever deep book and i i should um i should, I should read i should probably read this a bunch of times before i come up with you know, before I, I I try saying anything to anybody about it, let alone on a damn podcast. <laughs> oh, oh it's, I mean, but you're absolutely correct. Yeah, that 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 dichotomy is definitely there. It's so everything is so precarious. And I and I thought like when she first said in the book, she says, you know, babies can do you know can do the earth shaking thing, and I'm like, babies. Well, mm-hmm. where's your where's your system of control you know like i, I mean that, that was my initial thought you know my raw <laughs> thought and then like i was like oh the system is control is the fact that they have yeah, no yeah, control yeah. initially and then society doesn't you know they you know they cast them aside because of this and then uh, a valued person is somebody who can control it the way that she you know she went to the fulcrum and she got all this training and and now she's pres- i mean down to the math you know she's really she's very precise with it you know and then, and then she mm. still learns even more beyond that you know and she and she becomes like just this you know even amongst everybody who can yeah anybody can shake up and destroy a a, a city sure but 
the fact that but the fact that if she wants to, she can destroy a single pebble is where the value comes from. You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah. So I don't know. They, I do. I do have like um, I have mixed feelings about these characters that we're you know invited to identify with, and like at the same time you you're invited to kind of fantasize about having like tremendous power. You're also being invited to imagine yourself as like the underdog. And sometimes I wonder like, can you, can you have it both ways? Um, I'm going to have to read the third book <laughs> to, to find out. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I've only read yeah the two, I'm, I'm halfway yeah. through the second one, I think. Yeah. I'm about halfway through the second one. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's just excellent. I don't really know another way to describe it. It's just really well yeah. thought out. Uh, the, the, the main guy, Alabaster, who's, and, and, you know, who's like the top dog. Um, he's just, mm, yeah. He, I, I just think it's interesting how I, you know, they, they tell you what this thing, what this power does and everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people could do the same power. And then they somehow continue to, she continues to expand upon that somehow. And I'm just like, it's so interesting how she can, she just builds and builds and builds on this, this magic system. Like we got, we got back to magic systems <laughs> on this, on this magic system, you know? Um, but yeah. it is, it is very much about the give and take, you know? Uh, I mean, when, when it, another another thing I really love is how long she waits before using the word magic, and when it comes, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of wild when it comes. Um, yeah, the the there's some I think there's some interesting kind of socioeconomic thinking underpinning it as well in terms of um, disaster um, disaster socialism, I guess, but but maybe more broadly like when terrible things happen that they are terrible and you know the 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 tragedy is is real and the loss is real and the grief is real but at the same time they are sometimes opportunities to shake up power structures that would otherwise have been indomitable that would otherwise have been kind of entrenched forever and they're opportunities to rebuild systems even amidst the ruins that are kind of um you know m more just um, so Re Rebecca Solnit uh, writes about um, about this, as does I think Naomi Klein. So those are, yeah, um, you know, to, I guess to to bring us back to some of the things that we were talking about right near the beginning. Um, one of the things about the kind of the the world that we're facing in in the near future is that it's a world that is going to have to transform in radical ways economically one way or another um because of because of ecological catastrophe um because the sorts of economic systems that we use and the sorts of technologies that we use are not sustainable at the scale that we're using them so there are there are good versions of that that where we we, we somehow um, amidst the kind of chaos you know australia is on fire at the moment as as we speak and there are you know all, all kinds of unfolding interconnected ecological catastrophes amidst that chaos actually managed to build better economies, better societies and, and better worlds. Um, but there are also, you know, they're, they're really dystopian um, versions on, on the horizon already and not just on the horizon, but already the lived reality for a lot of people. So um, I guess may, maybe we're probably going to have to wind this up pretty, pretty soon, but maybe, maybe, maybe a, 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 a kind of good place to, 
to finish off with is is to think that like one of the things that that authors can do if they want um and some may feel a kind of uh you know a, a desire or even a duty to do um is imagine like positive vi- visions of the future like to take all these kind of possibilities all this kind of possible economic thinking and um you know cr- create happy happy interesting um rich diverse worlds that have got some kind of social justice underpinning them and then you know you know make terrible things happen to your main character and shit up and, and do all the stuff that that authors do but yeah you know like let's let's have some um some images of hope that that have, have you heard of the genre solar punk? solar punk that that one's that was yeah, new to me but, but that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. you know there's like there's so many punks like there's so many sub genres of sub genres of sub genre but solar punk is like uh one kind of, of speculative fiction that it, I think it, it is, is trying to do something a little bit like that. Oh, wow. Wow. I, I mean, I, I, re- I really like that idea. I, and I love, I love how all of these factors, like every time I, every time I, we, you know, I talk with anybody about these, these different random aspects about, of writing, um, how much it plays into world building, you know, and, and, and then how much you realize after the fact, like, Wow, this is really important to think about when in when writing, and this yeah. is another important angle to think about in writing. And this angle can further enhance my storytelling, you know, because it's just so because it's 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 not every story's been told. We know that 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 quote, you know, every every everything under the there's nothing new under the sun, you know. Um, so when, when we come at a story with that with those what ifs you know that's my favorite how you think of a story type of thing that what if you know well what if this society was created without money and you know what if you know this there was a magical world where gift giving systems was the was the uh you know the economical system that it's built upon you know like that's when you really that's where ideas come from you know what i mean like that's that's <laughs> that's where you get those unique stories you know I, I absolutely love that those those moments of what if but also man don't forget to like 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 write the story absolutely. like don't just keep that's true. the world that write is true <laughs> that that's a that's a super good point that is that is a form of procrastination world building is a form of procrastination. <laughs> yeah, where does the line lie between world building and procrastination? That sounds like a like a whole right, other right. Topic. That that is a form and because sometimes sometimes when you start writing, matter of fact, I'll say even I'll say in my own writing more than often when I just start writing the story because I because I now have a plot line going. Okay, my character woke up in his house. Okay, he goes downstairs and he walks outside. All right, then you you start because you're writing, you have to make make your world now you walked outside what does he see yeah. you know yeah. <laughs> you have no choice now <laughs> like, yeah. i can't i can't google that I have right to exactly up. and that's and that's what writing that's what writing is all about you know and then, and then when he gets to the market in his world what does he do does he pull out a credit card or does he give somebody a gift you know like <laughs> yeah 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 really. so so i mean i guess you can world you know you, you 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 like you say you have to world build as you go but but one of the nice things about doing a little bit of kind of preparatory world building is it allows you to like think about the kind of wilder ideas and so that when you get to that moment and you're you know you're thinking about the character and you're thinking about their motives and you're thinking about what's going to happen next and you're just kind of filling in the background detail you don't just reach for like the most obvious thing like the credit card instead 
you know you have you have the, the the hedgehog trots up covered in the feathers and and they pluck the um the yellow feather and they put it on their tongue and they go into the cyberspace uh exactly exactly and i mean that's that's what it's about though i mean I, that's what storytelling is all about um but yeah i've, I've loved this conversation it's it's been incredible Oh, me too. It's, been, it's been so much fun it's been so fascinating um yeah and i will be you know let's 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 stay in touch i'll um i'll, I'll check out some of your stuff Absolutely. and make, listen to future make, make sure you tell and, people um f- you know for for listeners uh where you know where they can find you online um where they can read some of your stuff or or um or even if it's just your tweets <laughs> um yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, listeners might be interested in the British Science Fiction Association. You don't have to be British to join. Um, and even if you don't join, there is always stuff up on our blog. Look up the, the Vector blog. If you type in Vector BSFA, uh, you should hopefully find it. Um, and yeah, we're on Twitter as at BSFA. Um, no, <laughs> awesome, awesome. And as usual, everybody knows that you can find me at Fourth Wall uh, on Twitter, also at fourthwall.net where you can find this very podcast, or you can go to your favorite podcasting app and look up Beyond the Fourth Wall of Writing, or just Beyond the Fourth Wall probably works. Remember, fourth is within IV, like the Roman numeral. Uh, and yeah, we'll catch you guys next time. Peace out.